Welcome to another edition of the McKnight's Long-Term Care News Market Leaders Podcast, where industry experts share their insights and seeds of success are planted. I'm McKnight's Executive Editor, Jim Berklin, and I'm here with Omnicare's Executive Director of Quality, Nancy Losman. Our title today is Stumbling Blocks or Stepping Stones, The Path to Decreasing Antipsychotic and Psychotropic Drug Use in Older Adults. Now, the use of antipsychotics and psychotropics in general among the long-term care population continues to be a high-focus topic, and with good reason. After all, these drugs can be very helpful, but they also can quickly do significant damage if not diagnosed and administered properly. And we know there are some significant changes coming regarding them, too. So let's jump right in, Nancy. It seems there's been emphasis on the overutilization of all psychotropics in long-term care for years. How can we do better? Thank you, Jim. It's a great question. We've all met the challenges of behavioral symptoms in some of our seniors as they uh, suffer from dementia. And often they seem a crisis at the moment they're happening. And the caregiver is always looking for the most expedient way to relieve the anxiety or the agitation with those residents. However, they would only be used, I would recommend, in a very short term, episodically rather than continually. I think we all realize early on that antipsychotics, even the newer classes of antipsychotics and in lower doses, can still cause great harm to seniors, including cardiometabolic disease, weight gain, and even the risk of death. Psychotropic medications, anxiolytics, medications that we use to help people sleep, um, antidepressants have an array of side effects, but primarily um, they cause falls, they cause lethargy, they lead to fractures, they lead to a lower quality of life. When we sedate someone, we are not presenting them with an opportunity to live to their fullest capacity. I think we need to take a hard look at the chronic use of all psychotropic medications and determine what is absolutely necessary and begin to take action to wean our residents from those psychotropic and antipsychotic medications to assure that we can instill for them the path to health and wellness and activity rather than worry about just managing the episodes of dementia that may present with agitation, worry, or even experience some behavioral episodes such as striking out. Okay. Now there are some definite changes coming up this fall. What's new in the state operations manual regarding antipsychotics and psychotropics uh, that's going to come into effect in November? Well, I think the greatest emphasis will be on the protocols that the surveyors will use to assure that the medications are absolutely necessary. What CMS has seen is a shift of use of antipsychotics to other types of psychotropics, just so we don't have to put down on the MDS or record on the MDS that the resident has an antipsychotic. The other thing that I believe has happened is what a consultant pharmacist might ask a physician to provide a diagnosis to support the use of these medications. And so they're adding an ICD-10 code or they're adding a reason for use without actually going back into the history and documenting the real underlying disease state. Let me give you an example. 
psychotropics, and especially the antipsychotics, or let's deal with antipsychotics, are indicated, for example, schizophrenia. Well, for a physician to say that a resident at 73 years old has developed schizophrenia is not really a valid reason for use. Schizophrenia, of course, is seen early age, perhaps 18 to 21 years old. You don't suddenly become schizophrenic at the age of 73. So we can no longer use uh, an undocumented disease state simply written in a chart as a rationale to use antipsychotics. And I think that the CMS teams are on to us and they know that this is happening and they're going to dig into those charts. If our charts indicate that someone has schizophrenia, they're going to ask for the history of that resident to identify when it was first seen to assure that it truly is schizophrenia or some other psychotic disease state rather than one that is just used to accommodate the reason for use and not to be penalized on your MDS when you submit your data. Alrighty, yes, CMS will be watching, no doubt, we know that. Now, what are some medications that affect the central nervous system but are not classified as antipsychotics or anxiolytics or hypnotics? Well, CMS has also identified that we are prescribing medications in long-term care in the use of dementia and behavioral episodes that don't classify themselves as an antipsychotic, a sedative, a, psych, a psychotropic like an antidepressant, or anxiolytic, or a hypnotic. And we have turned to medications such as antihistamines and anti-seizure medications like Divalprox to alleviate the symptoms that we see in dementia. These are unapproved for use. They are dangers into themselves. Some of them have such a narrow therapeutic index that they're even dangerous when given properly. And so it is a reason to use something to help sedate a resident that is not indicated may be used to, yes, control the behaviors, but certainly CMS will also be looking at using these other types of medications as a convenience for the staff. We all know that we are short-staffed, but the use of chemical restraints is certainly not something that we need to turn to to help accommodate an anxious or an agitated resident. I also want to make sure that our audience understands that we now have to treat these anti-seizure medications, anticholinergic medications, antihistamine medications used to treat behavioral episodes as any other psychotropic, which means that we have to have supporting diagnosis, rationale for use, proof of efficacy, and gradual dose reductions. So there are new classes that the pharmacists will have to manage with the prescribers to ensure that we safely discontinue these medications that are being used improperly to manage uh, behavioral episodes. The emphasis must be on non-drug interventions, assessment of the resident, and proper care planning, assuring that everyone in the nursing facility, all staff included, understands the particular care plan approaches for each of our residents so that we can understand the triggers of their behavioral symptoms, address them, with non-drug interventions and non-chemical restraint approaches to assure that they live the safest and most practicable life 
with the highest opportunity for activities of daily living and socialization in long-term care facilities. That is powerful advice, I find, that you're representing certainly a pharmaceutical provider and you are saying that non-pharmaceutical interventions and non-medication sometimes is the way that we really have to look at this. I mean, is that what you're finding, that the patient care is it's what's best for the patient? Sure. Um, we need to understand what the triggers are. So, for example, if we find that when someone is going is being told that they're going to take a shower or we're going to give them a bath, that might be one of those things that that particular senior doesn't want to do. And they may become resistant to care or even belligerent to the opportunity for that type of care. Well, Perhaps in the care plan, we should write that um, there are specific days and times when the resident will receive a bath or shower on their schedule, when they want to do it, not when we want to do it, or that we need to foreshadow for someone to let them know tomorrow is bath day. This morning is bath day. In an hour or so, I'm going to come and get you and we're going to go get a shower or a bath. Those are the types of things that we know are the triggers for a resident. And then we have to care plan for them uh, more effectively. I think in the new emphasis in the quality of care, regardless of the particular need of the resident, we're going to be focused on what's in that care plan. Does the staff know what's in the care plan and is the care plan being executed? Excellent. Excellent. Okay. Now, why are benzodiazepines risky when prescribed with an opioid? Well, benzodiazepines in the presence of drugs like uh, oxycodone, hydrocodone, morphine sulfate are what we call potentiators, and they really increase the risk of respiratory depression. So what we're trying to do is minimize the use of either the opioid or the benzodiazepine. One of the approaches to eliminating the opioid is to use it for as short a time as possible and to use the opioid in the lowest dose that is effective. And then begin, especially for post-surgical patients or rehab patients, to wean them off. What I would love to see as a goal in a care plan is that a resident who came in, let's say with a hip replacement or knee replacements or spinal surgery, would be discharged without the use of an opioid. And that we have turned to other types of drugs that are not as dangerous, that are far less addictive. And so they're going home without having that bottle of Percocet sitting in their medicine cabinet ready for someone else to access. Okay. Now, what is the facility team approach to a quality assurance program to minimize the use of psychotropic medication in any healthcare facility? Well, when I read through all of the new red-lined items in the state operations manual, there continually is this thread throughout all 800 pages of the quality assurance team, whether it is with antibiotic use or it is with psychotropic use. It does take the entire team to have an action plan. That action plan has to start from the top. It's going to take the leadership of the administrator, the medical director, the director of nursing, and other committee members to assure that they are driving a message of, we're not going to be using psychotropic medications in this facility unless it's 
absolutely necessary and the drugs are efficacious and that our residents live in in a better place, in, in a better sense of well-being when they're using psychotropic medications. I always use this example of what could happen when we inappropriately start someone on, let's say, an anxiolytic like lorazepam, a benzodiazepine. Someone has a behavioral episode. The nurse will call the prescriber and explain exactly what happened. And over the telephone, without seeing that resident, without identifying what the trigger was, perhaps the resident didn't feel good, he was too hot, he has an infection, who knows what it is, they start to order lorazepam. And before you know it, that resident is now calm and the drug is very effective. But is it efficacious? Well, it's certainly not efficacious if the resident is now sleeping through lunch or can't get out of bed or doesn't attend activities or is so sedated that he forgets to tell us he needs to use the restroom. Then we find him incontinent. And the next thing you know, um, we get him a disposable undergarment to make sure that we, and now we identify him as being incontinent. And all of that was because we initiated a drug, a psychotropic drug, over the phone for a single incidence of a behavioral disturbance when trying to get down to what exactly disturbed the resident and how can we avoid that next time. Right. Are there any care plan tips to support the minimization of psychotropics in the individual older adult? I think there are. And I think that the interdisciplinary care team really needs to ask the family what worked at home. You know, most of our residents, especially those who have dementia, have lived at home, usually with their family, as long as they possibly could be taken care of in that setting. Ask them, what did you used to do? What calmed mom? You know, what was the last time someone who loves to cook, for example, cooked in a nursing facility? What is the opportunity for a cooking class, for example, to keep someone focused on a task at hand rather than to be upset by a behavioral symptom? Is there a particular visitor that usually sparks a reaction in a resident? Is it something, as I said before, a bath? Are they in pain? Uh, Are they constipated? Any one of those physiological or mental triggers can cause a behavioral episode. And rather than turn to uh, a medication, what we need to do is understand the underlying factors or triggers and then address them as an individual in the care plan. However, At a resident level, care plans have to be effective, but you still need that overarching guidance of the Quality Assurance Performance Improvement Committee to take action and identify the trends within the facility to understand what is working, what are we providing our residents in terms of activities, patient-centered care, um, visitation rights, those types of things that keep our residents both safe and calm without the use of these psychotropic medications. All right. Now we're going to go to what I call the golden or maybe the golden buzzer question. I think everybody listening will be able to identify. Need to ask you, how do we convince a resident or family to discontinue psychotropic medications when they would like to see them continue 
Okay. So let's hearken back to the days of physical restraints. If there's one thing long-term care has ever done right, it is we have released the ties that bound our residents to their chairs or their beds. And we need to take that same approach. And most of that has to do with education. Most of our visitors and family members come into the facility. They don't want to see their loved one agitated. They want to see them calm. And so they figure if we give them a sedative, they'll have a more enjoyable time with their family member. And that may be true. However, the aftermath, the side effects of that medication linger after the family visit is over. So we need some outreach, family nights, consultant pharmacist education to non-staff members, and most especially to physicians and prescribers. We need to remind them, and they already know how dangerous it is to prescribe these types of medications, but we need to convince them to let's give it a try. Let's gradually decrease these doses and get our residents off of them. If you told me that you had a facility or you owned a facility or you ran a facility where no antipsychotics were used or you had 2% of your population using psychotropic medications, that might be the nursing home I would think about for one of my loved ones. Okay. Let's, let's dig just a little bit deeper on that though. So you're going to have resistant residents and family members. A, how do you say who's the weakest link there? Who's the toughest link to get through? And how do you do it? Uh, great plans are great, but mm-hmm. what really works? Most of the time, it's not. it may not be the responsible party for that individual. It might be the person in their family who is closest and the person who visits the most often. They need to have contrite one-on-one conversations to say, yes, while you may believe the psychotropics will keep your residents uh, or your loved one calm, it can blur their vision, cause them to be too sleepy, miss meals and lose weight, fall and fracture. And we all know what happens to an advanced age senior when they break a hip. The outlook for them beyond a year is very short. So you need to take the data within your facility that's been collected on the negative outcomes of psychotropic medications and explain that and use that rationale to teach our visitors, the loved ones of our residents, why there is a greater risk than benefit to the use of psychotropic medications. Fantastic. Now, let's go back to the docs who you had mentioned just a little bit earlier. How do we change the minds of prescribers who order antipsychotics and psychotropics to address dementia? You need to set strong policy, but you need to engage your physicians in the writing of that policy. You need to engage physicians to modify the culture of the facility itself without making prescribers stakeholders to the process, you're not going to get very far. They're going to hear that they've been disturbed at 10 o'clock at night, and now they're going to write for a controlled substance benzodiazepine to keep someone calm, and they're going to keep that order in place because they don't want to be disturbed again 
because this resident has recurring behaviors. Well, let's get that physician in there and to say, you know, you're going to be able to use a benzodiazepine for 24 hours, and then you better come in and see this resident, and let's make sure there isn't a physiological reason like a UTI or even the beginning symptoms of COVID to understand that this behavioral symptom has another cause, another trigger. And if it is psychosocial, if it's from previous harm, previous trauma, the way the resident lived, then uh, we need to address that as well and have that conversation. But if you don't involve the prescribers in your practices, in your facility, in your culture, in your, in your philosophy, or in your policy, you're not going to get through to them. Outstanding. I, just great stuff. This is why I love getting together to find out, folks. Uh, you really get practical information and advice. So, Nancy, I, I, what's the final word you really want to impart upon the folks joining us today? Well, if I were to say anything, it would be to always take a look at psychotropic and antipsychotic management at two different levels. One, at the resident-specific level. Let's take a look at why it's needed, what the behaviors are, what triggers them, what care plans work. And if the care plans don't work, let's revise them. You don't have to wait a whole quarter to change an approach on a care plan. If it's not working, let's try something else right away. I'll be honest with you. I have seen facility staff wait too long to change a care plan. Don't change it just once a quarter. It's a living document. The care plan can change as needed. On the other hand, at a facility level, you must incorporate this as a quality initiative in your facility with the goal of only using antipsychotics and psychotropic medications when they're absolutely necessary after full resident assessment and evaluation and complete documentation, continually monitoring not the effectiveness of the drug, but the efficacy of the medication. That is something I am going to definitely remember that distinction. What do you say? A difference with a distinction. Just one of the great points that you made today, Nancy. I, I want to thank you again for sharing so much insight with us. We've been speaking with Nancy Losman, Executive Director of Quality for Omnicare. Thanks to everyone for listening to this edition of McKnight's Long-Term Care News Market Leaders Podcast. We look forward to seeing you again. Please check out our various other archived installments wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, I'm Jim Berklin, wishing you good health and outstanding days ahead. Thank you.